0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: So, weighing on the data, I'm pleased to say, joining us here in New York, we can say good morning to David Page, AXA Investment Managers Senior Economist. Good morning to you, David. Good morning. Let's talk about their data. A little bit later this morning in America, what are you looking for?
2: So I think what we're seeing, and we've seen it in the European numbers, is that we're in a global manufacturing slowdown here. Um, And that's something that we've seen very clearly in the US data as well. What's not obvious is how much that's spilling forward. So in terms of the ISM today, we see another soft picture, you know, mixed numbers that coming out of the regional um, numbers. Even yesterday, Chicago was pretty soft. Dallas, not so much so. Um, And from a European perspective, I think, you know, very, very early suggestions that maybe. We've seen something of a, a bottom come through here. But I think, you know, we, in the broad scheme of things, the ISM is going to remain soft, and it's how much it spills into the non-manufacturing on on Thursday that's going to be key. What are you seeing beneath the surface of some really awful headline
1: numbers that give you some encouragement that the story might be bottoming out? What are you so seeing? A
2: couple of things. I mean, A, the, the China numbers this weekend, or uh, this these last couple of days, was not too bad. We've started to see some pickup come through there. Also, the European PMIs, Um, Although they've fallen back, they're at odds with some of the the more country-based measures, particularly in France, for example. So we think that given the China move, there may be some traction coming through from the stimulus that we've seen. The problem, of course, is going to be the additional headwinds that we see come through in the fourth quarter. We are expecting trade to be an issue again, probably as soon as the next couple of weeks.
0: David, what's the statistic AXA has on the U.S. economy? Is it 2%? Is it more optimistic 2.3? Or do you bring it on down with all these challenges to something sub that this 12 months forward?
2: So for this year, we've got 2.3%. Next year, we've got 1.6. So we think it slows, and we've got Q3 GDP coming in at 2% annualized. So we are seeing it slow down.
0: I mean, I look at AXA. I look at your colleagues at PIMCO with much the same responsibilities that AXA has with longer old money. How do the politicians do a sub 2% economy?
2: Well, not comfortably. Um, And of course, I think that's one of the debates that's going on in the White House at the moment. We've heard a lot of White House staff suggesting that they've been urging the president to take this interim deal from China, to try and soft-pedal a little bit through here and concentrate on a solid economy, particularly going into next year's election. Now, whether or not the president takes that, whether or not he can take that against a backdrop of all the domestic pressure here, is a big question. And John,
0: the chart of equities flat, even a little rising in the quarter, fractionally... Versus the Q3 story, which was stunningly low yields. David, wouldn't that be really,
1: really disappointing that after this massive effort to get China to level the playing field, they accepted an interim deal for short-term political and
2: economic reasons? Well, it's not clear that they're going to have much of a choice. There is no long-term strategic deal on the table over over the next three months. Potentially, probably not over the next 12 months either. So... What you see is a pragmatic choice that the White House has to make. Do they persist with tariff hikes on the 15th of October and the 15th of December and potentially going into next year, risking the problems of an election or not? Would it be disappointing certainly not for markets if we say well this would be the big
1: question i think that has existed over the last two years to what degree would the economy to what extent would the markets constrain this administration's ability to do what i think a lot of people agree with which is getting china to open the economy up more and getting them to level the playing field i haven't seen it in the markets financial conditions are still pretty loose supported Mm. of course by the federal reserve we've certainly had a lot of volatility in between now and say 18 months ago In the economy, we've started to see some weakness, but not in the labor market in a pronounced way that I think is really unsettling this administration just yet. Now, I emphasize the word yet because I wonder when it will
2: start to bleed into the labor market. Do you see any sign of that at the moment, David? That it's bleeding through, yes. I mean, we've seen a clear slowdown in in the labor market. Some of that's driven by manufacturing. So, you know, we'll get payrolls on Friday to confirm the trend, but the three-month trend in payrolls growth has slowed to sub 150, whereas last year, Albeit boosted so, by a fiscal stimulus, it was over 200. So do you, we are seeing a softening.
0: Well, that's brilliant. How do you model sub 2% GDP and that 145,000 non-farm payrolls. Are we going to enjoy 120,000 run rate?
2: No, I think the risk is, and I think we're close to a tipping point here, and that's one of the key concerns. If we see the economy dip much below 1.5%, right. then you would expect to see un- the employment rate slow, so that unemployment starts to pick up, and that's not sustainable. The Fed would have to work harder What's the equilibrium rate? Basis. Just to jump in, David, what's the equilibrium rate? The, the amount of payrolls we need to be generating every month, just to keep things in balance? On a trend basis, we would say 140, obviously, month to month, the labor supply jumps about a little bit. So you can see the unemployment rate not move. But on a trend basis, over yeah. a six month, we would say 140,000. We're about there, we think. Okay,
0: I, you're going to be a fixed income strategist now. Don't let Gilmowek un- know that. Pharaoh doesn't know what to do with a real yield on Friday, so you got to get him started here. It's a backup in yields. What is the significance of the recent backup in yields, higher yields, lower bill note bond prices, 30-year bond on 2.17%. What's it signify?
2: So at the moment, we're, we're not thinking that this signals a slowdown. We think that there has been a pickup come through. The shift in the inversion, we think, perhaps um, suggests that markets are getting a different read on how the Fed's going to operate the plumbing of the system. But I think longer term, this continued inversion yeah. is a risk to the economy.
0: It, to me, it's fascinating, John, how we're, you know, I don't fault David for this at all. We're microanalyzing three basis points or four basis points of moves in the 210 spread. I actually think the That's move this morning to- though
1: is is actually quite significant. The Bank of Japan came out on Monday and essentially slashed its purchase ranges for four major maturities. It signalled that it may even be inclined to stop buying anything longer than 25 years. The Bank of Japan wants a steeper yield curve. What that's meant this morning is that when the Japanese government came out with a 10-year issue, it had the weakest demand in around about three years. And what did we get? Exactly what the BOJ wanted, steeper yield curves. And we didn't just get that in Japan, we're getting that in the United States as well this morning. And another point of encouragement, and it's really, really early, to draw any firm conclusions, but it is a point of encouragement nevertheless. The idea that we have got high yields, steeper yield curves, and an equity market that finished positive in Japan, I just wonder if that's a clue, a little nudge for Lagarde's ECB to take a look at what the Bank of Japan is doing because if this continues, I think it's really encouraging. And what's
0: really important here, David, and this goes to Economics 101, I'm going to call it Greenspan 101, is the idea that if you get a risk on feel and a better stock market that pulls right into a confidence builder for a a troubled economy.
2: Absolutely. And the corollary of that is that one of the biggest risks going further forward, so far we've had a strong household sector, but household yeah. sector doesn't remain strong if you see a tightening in financial conditions. So then we loop all the way right. back to trade. If we get negative news yeah. developments coming through in trade, that plays the risk yeah. through the household sector. And that's the bigger risk, not lo- just looking through 2020, mm-hmm. but you know potentially considering downturn no. in 2021.
0: David Page, come back when you solve Brexit. He is with David, AXA this you. morning. <laughs> John Farrow and Tom King getting you started on a Tuesday, the first day of the fourth quarter. To frame this, and particularly for a U.S. audience, uh, we need to look at Europe. Timothy Graff with us with State Street Global uh, Markets. Tim, I want to start with why an American audience needs to focus on Europe dynamics. That's not intuitive, and yet there we are, weak euro, strong dollar, Lagarde coming in. Why do you care about Europe if you're someone planted in the United States of America?
3: Sure, Tom. Absolutely. Good morning. Um, I think a lot of what happens in Europe matters quite a bit for U.S. investors in particular, not least given the anchoring of yields caused by central bank policies in Europe, which, of course, have driven yields significantly lower. Treasuries tend to respond to that and, and get a demand, as does the dollar in response to that based off of yield differentials. Europe is also, I think, important as kind of where a lot of the negative feedback loops as far as trade tensions are concerned are happening in that it is a very open economy. You have other smaller European economies like Sweden that are even more open and that respond to these trade tensions and particularly the reduction in trade volumes and the hits to industrial production right. growth in emerging markets, they're very sensitive and that has global implications that Chip, U.S. investors need to pay attention. Uh, John
0: Farrell, to. This is incredibly important, what Mr. Graff said about feedback loops. To me, that's a huge theme in the year end.
1: Well, Tim, let's explore it further. You've been bullish the dollar now for, what, four years? A lot of people trying to work (laughs) out the pieces that pull together to generate the circumstances whereby the dollar actually does roll over. And it hasn't been the yield differential story, Tim. So what will it be?
3: I'm... (laughs) At this point, what I think the the, the most likely and proximate cause is, is a Fed that is even more dovish than what markets anticipate. And the markets already anticipate some more rate cuts over the coming 12 months. So I think it's going to really require that because, as you noted, the fall in relative yield differentials between the U.S. and other currencies so far has not impacted it. You have clear dollar funding gaps that are showing up on uh, foreign balance sheets. You have funding dislocations in the U.S overnight market as we've seen the last couple of weeks, all of which speak to, to me at least, a structural demand for dollars that even the easier Fed policy we've seen over recent months is not enough to quench. And so I think the response of the Fed is probably the key variable here. And that's kind of why, even though I'm looking for reasons to be negative on the dollar, I can't really find them because, at least as far as the the way the Fed is currently speaking, I don't see that shift happening, at least for the next several months.
1: Tim, many people have struggled to get the dollar call right, especially over the last couple of years. The consensus view right now is to be short the global cycle to some degree and certainly not to be long the inflation story. Tim, is there some optionality there that you want to take?
3: I, yeah, I think as much as I don't see you know the Fed needing to respond to a lot of the the, the, um, the disinflationary conditions and and continuing to, to ease policy a lot further, I think break evens just or tips in general look attractive from a risk reward perspective. Basically, as you say, no one is contemplating the possibility of inflation, and I suspect that's kind of probably going to be the reality while we're in this environment of trade tensions. But the fall in forward break evens to not just in the U.S. but Elsewhere has been so aggressive towards multi-year lows that I think risk reward favors having at least some inflation protection as part of a portfolio, even if you know you yeah. do get continued falls in nominal yield. Yeah. Inflation protection, inflation protection, will still do relatively well, just not is, as well as nominal.
0: Is dividend growth inflation protection?
3: That's a good question. Yeah, it probably in this day and age, it, it probably is, and that's. You know, that was the, the narrative we had a couple of years ago when stocks were the new bonds, when the S&P dividend yield rose above uh, nominal yields as it has done recently. And so I suspect it probably is as good of an inflation protection as anything else right now.
1: Tim, great to catch up with you. Timothy Graff, State Street head of Amir, macro strategist, weighing in on global markets, Tom.
0: Funnier. It's October 1, Q4, all the stresses out there, the pageantry we're seeing in China, just extraordinary, the very serious protests in Hong Kong as well. And we need to describe, and we have a guest here that can absolutely nail this, which is what we always hope for at Bloomberg Surveillance. Tottenham's playing the Germans, Man City's playing Dinamo Zagreb, did I get that, was I close? Dynamo Zagreb, yeah.
1: Real, what's Club Rouge? Club Brugge. What is going on? Well, it's the Champions League. It's when all the big clubs in Europe play each other.
0: Is this bigger than Premier Football?
1: Yeah, to win the Champions League is massive.
0: Is it like a bigger deal than like Man City last year?
1: Yeah, Liverpool winning the Champions League. I think Man City would have liked to have done what Liverpool did last year so and win the Champions League.
0: Is it at Locomotive Moscow or is it at so this Atletico is, this
1: Madrid? Is, this is the group stage. So this is the group stage. You have to come top two you in your group in to advance to the knockout stages. Alessia DeLonquist, Invesco Investment Solutions Senior Portfolio Manager. Does just the lights. at
0: Invesco dim when you and the rest of you are watching ten games at one time.
4: Uh, they they do look at me like I'm a. An alien, um, and <laughs> uh, what the, the whole fuzz is about. But uh, you know, it's the greatest sport in the world, and the Champions League is really the the Acropolis, the Olympus of, I, I uh, of soccer. I agree. It's just a beautiful thing. I
0: burst into tears here.
4: You're gonna watch some of it.
0: Like Juventus Bayer, is that like a big deal?
1: That's a nice game to watch. You should watch that. Is at there like PM. one game here I need to focus on?
0: Oh come on, Liverpool's playing Red Bull
1: tomorrow. I would say the game, the pick of oh, the tomorrow, the, the pick me, of today sorry. and tomorrow is Barcelona-Inter tomorrow at 3 p.m.
2: Okay, yes. I'll focus. It's, which is, and Inter Milan right.
1: is, is Alessio's team. We you welcome
0: know. all of you coast to coast across America. If they're America still with us.
1: <laughs> <laughs> let's go to Alessio,
0: and let's turn it within your research note to America, which is Invesco, which was, you know, the combination with Oppenheimer is all about international investment, but you're saying America first. That's still not time to overweight international, all right,
4: is it? Yes, the cyclical forces are still suggesting that um, U.S. equities are still the better place to be, both from a a policy standpoint, as well as the the dynamism within the private sector, the resilience in the private sector. Certainly, valuations and long-term prospects are now beginning, long-term expected returns uh, are looking more attractive in foreign markets, including emerging markets. But what's the
0: catalyst for me to have the courage to go in there?
4: Exactly. You always need a catalyst. Valuations don't make a trade. What will that catalyst be? We need to see that, that turnaround in, in emerging, market gro- emerging markets growth, I think, is what is going to lead us into this rotation trade. But it may well take first that general global recession uh, to reset the clock. Right? Do you remember the G20 in Argentina around about 12
1: months ago? Yeah, you do, you, do, you remember what the, do you remember what the market was looking for, Alessio? It was looking for a truce with China and the United States. And, and that's actually what we got at the G20 in Argentina. It wasn't enough to stop an ugly Q4. And the consensus view that I keep hearing, looking out through the rest of this quarter and looking into 2020, is that it will be defined by the trade story. The trade story holds the keys to what will happen, the fate of assets, cross-asset and worldwide. So do you think we're missing the broader story? Because a lot of people thought that would define Q4, and that's really not what defined Q4. Mm -hmm. What defined Q4 was a series of monetary policy mistakes, looking back on things. What do you think really determines the outcome of assets going out 12 months? And
4: can we really say it's just one thing, it's the outcome of the trade story? I think going out 12 months, that's still the story, really, because um, monetary policy, as, as we've discussed in the past, cannot really offset that. There, there's, we're now pushing on a string, and today's and with the bond sell-off is a bit of an example of that. Um, and equity valuations are otherwise very stretched. So to be honest, uh, bond yields are the asset class that has reflected most cleanly that trade bearishness and bond lower bond yields is what is maintaining um, high equity valuations globally where you see the impact of the trade war is really in this outperformance of u.s equities compared to international and emerging market equities that spread given the global expansion that we've seen otherwise doesn't make sense right trade is affecting foreign markets much more than u.s domestic markets because of the much okay. larger propensity but if to- okay,
0: this is fascinating because if we get a successful trade agreement, even, John, as you were complaining earlier, if it's just some quick thing to get through to the politics of 2020, that's bad for U.S. equities because the sigh relief will shift us to a bid on international?
4: On a relative basis, that should be far more positive for international markets than U.S. markets. Does it mean that U.S. equities should suffer outright? No, that, But on that a relative ab- basis, on this is really important,
0: basis. folks. I mean, this is one of the great bets of q4 john you okay over there
4: yeah i'm just following
1: the conversation do you
0: think inter milan really can do it against barcelona <laughs> i think they've got a tough
1: game six ahead of them. that would years. be fantastic nobody's been that, for that, six that, and a half years that wasn't what i was thinking about is that if you've got some real stats are they real stats are you making them up i i'm reading folks i'm reading <laughs> it on this.
0: i'm reading on this and like like pharaoh's over there reading it on max
1: scherzer no, actually, the
0: washington nationals as alessio
1: was talking about the potential of outperformance abroad in global equities it started to get me thinking about the underperformance of foreign exchange for the U.S. dollar against G10. And I think if you really want to construct a story to tell that develops into a weaker dollar story, you need to be telling me good things about global growth. You need to be telling me a better story of global trade. Can you tell me a better story in
4: 2020 that unlocks that dollar weakness? It it would have to be... In relative terms i think it's it, bearing a, a successful trade negotiation that creates that catalyst that tom was talking about that catalyst to um accelerate foreign growth the the only other element the only other narrative that you can build is a surprising deceleration in u.s growth that on relative terms uh, raises the attractiveness of foreign markets given where how we're currently priced the positioning in favor of US asset classes is now really a multi year high, right? Any asset class you pick, bonds, credit, equities, US asset classes have outperformed for their foreign counterparties now for many, many years. That, the potential for that rotation and the turnaround in expectations yeah. is very powerful. I
1: want to wrap things up on the bond market for our listeners that might have just tuned in. We had a 10-year bond auction in Japan yeah. overnight. The weakest mm-hmm. demand in around about three years. We had some tweaks from the BOJ yesterday, which essentially meant they really want to anchor the front end of the yield curve in Japan and want to buy less of the long end to generate a steeper yield curve. That spooked some investors. It's bleeding into global bond markets, steeper curves, higher yields. Do you think that the ECB... And this is really aimed at the ECB. We'll be looking at Governor Kuroda right now in the Bank of Japan and thinking, if this works, if risk assets, equities, credit can do well in a rising yield environment because the curve is steeper, and that the Bank of Japan has been able to adjust the modalities of its bond buying program to generate that, to determine that outcome, do you think the ECB could follow suit?
4: The ECB could. Um, I am still skeptical of how much steepening of the yield curve we can generate here, um, given the challenges that we have and given the limited prospects on, on long-term nominal growth. Uh, without a, a healthy and credible rise of inflation, let's say just 1%, one, 1.5%, one um, it's very difficult to maintain a right. steeper yield curve. From here,
0: then within that, does Investco suggest scale? Do people come in? There'll be more M and A, etc. Um, is that Q four? Is there's a De- I mean, John, it, it, it's got to happen if you got nominal GDP that low. I mean, you get you either you do or you begin a merger and acquisitions discussion before twelve thirty
4: one, right? Well, yeah, not really my turf to to opine on that. I think we really gets you in uh, trouble. <laughs> I, mean. I think the I think the challenge is, um, you know. M&A's globally have been really mostly uh, a function of, of yeah. uh, it's, where, it's where the, why the borrowing has taken place. Like when you look right. back, we, we always ask ourselves, what could be the excesses that bring the current cycle to its end? There is none to point out unless you look at the non-financial corporate debt sector and all of that leverage has really been yeah. deployed into share buybacks mm-hmm. and M&A activity. If that willingness to borrow right. or to lend decreases... That's a part of the market. Quickly, before
0: offered. you watch Milwaukee, uh, Washington, uh, in the playoffs, what are you going to watch? Champions League, What's, what are you watching at three?
4: Uh, <laughs> it will have to be Juventus, I guess. Uh, that's my, my pick for That's today. an
0: Italian football team. Yes. Thanks for
4: translating, <laughs> Thank you. She's that. up six.
0: <laughs> Alessio DeLongas in Vasco. Good morning. This is Bloomberg. John Furrier and Tom Keene, we're focused on the markets. We'll get to that in a minute. Right now, we are thrilled on the 70th anniversary of what Mao wrought. To have Meredith Sumter with us of Eurasia Group. Meredith, John, I, I believe John read it. I can't remember in the blur of the morning. The president tweeting out, congratulations, President Xi, on the 70th anniversary. Translate that. How is that treated by the Chinese? And how is the president's congratulations given the span of 70 years in u.s sino relations
5: the president's offering her greetings uh, and congratulations on the 70th anniversary I'm sure it will be you know, warmly received in Beijing but it does not fundamentally change the underlying constraints of these the world's two largest economies finding some kind of reconciliation between their two economic models so Look, we're we're looking at the prospects for some kind of, not a full-fledged deal, but even some kind of, of modest agreement or arrangement when Liu He comes to Washington next week that would at least sort of ease an onward escalation of tariffs. That's what Xi Jinping is really focused on, too. He is not interested in any comprehensive deal with um, President Trump. Uh, He views President Trump as weak, uh, beholden to the ballot box, but even further weakened uh, after uh, the the threat of impeachment and impeachment proceedings, which Eurasia Group believes will result in the House voting to impeach the President, and we place a a 75% probability on that. So what we see the Chinese doing Essentially, with and I know Tom, uh, you and John are also watching this as well. There have been reports that you know China is going to move forward with some soybean purchases. Uh, they are moving forward with you know, some further slight opening in its financial sector. They're doing things to allow for an easing of current tensions, but they're not interested in fundamentally coming to the table with the kinds of structural reforms that Trump's yeah. Washington says is necessary for a long-term I, I, agreement to take hold. I think in Sumter speak,
0: John, that was called a complete cave by the United States.
1: <laughs> Meredith, wouldn't that be somewhat disappointing if that's yeah. what we do get after spending 18 months? to aggressively take on the Chinese, to do what many people agree is the right thing to do, to get them to open up, to get them to level the playing field, wouldn't it be somewhat disappointing if they caved and absolutely achieved very little?
5: That's exactly right, John. And and, and this is why... Uh, we have this sort of paradox in Washington right now where you have a president, because of the political risk from impeachment, he is primed to find some kind of arrangement. And keep in mind, he's got to keep those Republican senators on his side. Uh, And they're telling him, you need to stave off on the onward escalation of tariffs. So he's got that. On the other side, he's got nothing from Beijing on the fundamental asks that Bob Lighthizer has been putting on the table consistently since September 2017. And Beijing, is just waiting to see right. who is going to be elected in November 2020. So, I think the risk here for investors is not so much what's happening in the trade space, but the real mm-hmm. game is going to come outside of the trade space because the trade space is kind of static right now. So, you got to look at the at the national security or the the non-trade areas. Yeah. And that's why the announcements on last Friday and, you know, continued over the weekend of uh potential increased U.S. scrutiny of Chinese companies listing on U.S. markets. It's that kind yeah. of onward escalation outside of tariffs that we're well, going to be watching for moving forward.
0: I would suggest, Meredith, that maybe what we could do is is have the president throw out the first baseball at the Brewers' <laughs> national game tonight. That would be a good start. John, we're going to get back something. on to baseball. <laughs> squeeze, squeeze something need something. In.
1: Meredith, just to wrap things up, our go-to question with you is often to get insight as to what is happening with the Chinese press. I'd be really intrigued to find out from you just how this impeachment inquiry of speaker pelosi is playing in china right now what's the story the chinese people are being told and how's it resonating with the government
5: In this week, the focus is less on the impeachment and more on the 70th anniversary. And so there there hasn't been as much speculation in Chinese press about it. Uh, it, It's a very foreign concept, I think, for the Chinese people to look at what they would presume to be the most powerful political operator in the United States, the most powerful country of the world, being humbled in this way. Uh, But, you know, if you talk to Chinese contacts in the negotiations, around the negotiations, this just further confirms for Beijing that time is on their side and that as, you know, President Trump deals with these impeachment proceedings and the political embarrassment to him of being impeached, even if he's not going to be removed from office, you know, from Beijing's perspective, they're using this time. To double down on economic resiliency, uh, so as you know, tariffs go up with the U.S. They look for other ways to get tariffs to come down with other trading partners. They're looking for no. other ways to reform their economy in in China's own view of how its economy should Mm -hmm. be reformed to strengthen it for a long-term confrontation. Because they know, regardless of whether the president is removed from office, regardless of who wins in November 2020, they know they've got a long-term economic struggle with the United States, and they're preparing for that.
0: Meredith Sumter, we're honored you're with us, the 70th anniversary of uh, uh, Mao's uh, Chinese revolution. Meredith Sumter with Eurasia Group. Diane Swank with us right now. Let's get to this, Grant Thornton. Diane, you just heard John go through the busy week that we're going to see. What will we know next Monday?
6: I think one of the things we'll know next Monday is just how weak is manufacturing persisting, or are we seeing a bit of a dead cat bounce or something coming back here? That's been one of the key issues we're watching very closely. And more importantly, is is there contagion into the rest of the economy? What we want to see is the weakness we've seen tied to growth abroad and the weakness in growth abroad and the trade war to start to dissipate instead of compound. And so far, we've yet to see that.
1: Diane, a ton of data through the week. What are the data points out of everything we get that you'll be closely following the most, more than anything?
6: Well, the ISM and the employment, of course. The ISMs, because they give us a sense more on a real-time basis. And what's interesting is this employment report that we've got for the month of September will not include, that comes out on Friday, will not include the GM strike that will, if it continues into next week, show up in the October data. But it will show up in production as we go forward and things like that. And so the knockoff effects, those things are going to be important. But the employment data on Friday, really watching participation.
0: Diane Swank mentioned it there and I would suggest that she is more qualified than anyone we speak to day after day after day to speak on the atomization of the American labor movement in an underreported GM strike. Have you been struck, Diane, of how it has been underreported, this uh, effort at General Motors?
6: I think more striking is how few people it includes. I remember back when I was a kid when GN had over 600,000 workers. We're talking about 58,000 workers, um, about 50,000 workers, 48,000 workers on strike. And then the knockoff effects to suppliers and production in Canada as well has been idled. So it does have an impact and it. Many of the workers show up in different places than they once did as well. It's not just the complete loss of manufacturing at GM. It's also that workers that were once classified as, Workers at GM are now classified as, you know, service workers outside of GM, accountants and things like that.
0: What is the urgency to settle this strike for the management of General Motors, but also for the greater Midwest region?
6: Well, it's really clear at a time it's adding insult to injury at a time when we're already feeling the effects of tariffs in the manufacturing sector. And this is critical as it goes through the supplier chain. The supply chain is being affected. And I think that's the way we need to think about it is the knockoff effects are not insignificant. It's hard to make up these days the losses to these kinds of things.
0: This manufacturing recession, if you run a regression equation, you throw on epsilon in the far right, but along the way there are those things, those coefficients. How large is the Trump mercantile coefficient? How large in this manufacturing slowdown is the trade war?
6: The trade war is certainly a key factor for the U.S. because what we have is a global economic slowdown that certainly is exacerbating it. And it's often, you know, when I think the trade war has exacerbated weakness, most notably in China. So as China was stumbling, we stuck our foot out and they're stumbling even more and tripping up even more. But there's no question that for the U.S. this has really been some unintended consequences in terms of the fallout effects. We all know that China cheats. There's all kinds of issues with regard to our tense relationship with China, the question is, is this the right way to solve them given the knockoff effects in the manufacturing sector, particularly here in the Midwest where we're feeling it most.
1: Diane, let's try and tie all of this together if we can with one common theme. It just seems to me that at the epicenter of a lot of this is a really, really weak global auto sector yes. right now, Diane. Just how much is that one sector driving things?
6: Well, it's not the only sector driving things, but it is a major. You know, ironically, the auto sector driving things. This is you know, vehicle sales peaked in China some time ago, and that's what was the, one of the fastest growing markets for the global vehicle auto sector. It's one of the reasons that Germany is feeling the sluggishness it is and t- um, flirting with recession itself at this stage of the game. So you really do see the effects globally here, but it's more than that alone. I think the disruptions to the supply chain throughout our economy are really quite large in the global economy, and the slowdown, the inability to stimulate like we once did, let's face it, we just don't have the tools. Then and, how, you know I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but the uncertainty no, that's okay. is, is a tax. It really is a tax on the economy. Not only are the tariffs <laughs> a direct tax, yeah. but the indirect tax of uncertainty is even greater.
0: That's the first day of the quarter. You're allowed to be Diane Downer, uh, but
6: <laughs> but you know,
0: I'm out of time, Diane. I got like I got, seriously, I got like 15 more questions, and we'll get to Let's them. Let's get Diane back the, sometime. We should soon. get her back on. That was brilliant. We love there? that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance podcast